Hey, it's time for a new episode of the podcast. It's Monday. I like Mondays. Do you like Mondays? Monday, October 19th. Do you like the number 19? Did you know it's a mystical number? I was just reading an old post yesterday because I was looking back at times in the past when I've discussed court packing, because court packing is an issue these days. And um, I got back to something in 2012, during the 2012 election, when a legal commentator was proposing that the correct number to expand the Supreme Court to was 19. And I got involved in looking up the number 19 back then, and uh, there's some there's a Wikipedia article on just about every number, so the Wikipedia article on 19 was very interesting. There are people who think 19 is quite a mystical number for various reasons. Do you you know, you can impute mystical things to any number, and all the numbers are special. I remember when I was a kid, I felt like the numbers had personality. It was a little bit like synesthesia, you know, the way you think colors have smells and so on. Some people have that kind of mind that combines senses. When I was young, the different numerals seemed to have a personality, and it was quite distinct to me. I remember nine not being a very good person, to the extent that numbers are people. Five, did I like five? I don't remember. I've grown out of it, the sense that um, numbers had a personality. They, they were sort of rivals or friends of each other. <laughs> Why did that go away? Why, I, that was a kid feeling that I had. Oh, by the way, I am Ann Althouse, your podcaster, your blogger, and I'm basically just a former law professor a retired law professor. I've been around a long time, and I just uh, can say that I've been blogging for something like 17 years. And so um, what I do every day is get up and blog the various news stories, whatever I'm seeing, not necessarily politics, but or like art. I like subjects other than politics. And man, this particular election, what a hellish year this is. Is this the worst election ever? Personally, I'm abstaining, uh, and maybe others will want to join me. And that's a topic, one of the topics today. But we'll get to what I'm going to do is read the blog, read what's gone up on the blog this morning. The first post went up at 5.59 a.m. I'm going to be reading you the posts, and I'm going to expand or digress as I see fit. So that's the idea for the podcast. It's a simple thing as a podcast built on the blog. And you can go over and read the blog, but you won't have to read the blog because I'm reading it to you. This is the audiobook of the blog. Now, the first thing that went up on the blog, which, as I said, went up at 5.59, is already semi-ruined by the fact that the person who put up an interesting video didn't really expect it to go viral the way I think it did go viral. So what you see in the post now is just one of the pushbacks to this viral video that you can no longer watch unless somebody has preserved it in some other way. The post is titled Boxed In on the 405. And what the original post was a young woman who was, while still driving in her car, photographing herself being all emotional about how people on the 405, which is a busy road in Los Angeles, um, 
were laughing at her and what terrible people they were. They were Trumpsters. And the situation was that the traffic, and I hear there's often a lot of traffic on the 405, but there was a particular lot of traffic that were people going to see a Trump rally, I think, or some kind of Trump event. I don't think Trump does rallies in California, but, you know, it's not really a swing state, but it was some kind of Trump event. And the woman was mad because she didn't like Trump and she wasn't going to that event. So the traffic was bugging her because she was attributing it to Trump. So she felt like those were seemed to be Trumpsters in all those other cars. And she was boxed in. They had boxed her in. Well, that's what gridlockish traffic is like. You're boxed in. So what she was trying, she seemed to think she had, uh, if I gather correctly, I can't watch the video anymore. But if I gather correctly, she was trying to... Um, maybe get out and go around, but you can't really do that on the on the highway. You don't have a right to go over onto the shoulder and get around or expect anyone to get out of your way. You're all just in that gridlock together. And you don't have more rights because you're not going to the same place or you think, or even if it's true, that they're all going to a place that you're not going to. That's just tough luck. That's just the way traffic is. That's just reality. And you're in the same boat, the same road with everyone else. But she was crying and then uh, complaining that they were laughing at her. Well, I guess they were seeing her thinking she had a right to get out of the traffic and go around them and was uh, getting angry. So if their reaction to that was laughing at her, I'd say compared to road rage, that was actually pretty mild. I think because she probably was being ludicrous. She was ludicrous in the viral video that's gone now. And uh, at one point she even points out that she's Mexican, as if people were laughing at her because of her eth ethnicity, which was absurd and delusional. And, all, and it's all Trump's fault. Anyway, all you can see at the post now under the headline, boxed in on the 405, is I could have crashed. I'm, so I'm recording myself crying with one hand wiping my nose and my other hand holding my phone while driving to tell you about it. You know, people film themselves doing, I mean, it's reckless driving, isn't it? Why do people openly on social media commit crimes? There's another case post this morning about, uh, this is from the New York Times, a rapper arrested after bragging about unemployment fraud in video. Fontrell Antonio Baines, who performs as Nuke Bizzle, illegally obtained $1.2 million in jobless benefits intended for workers idled by the coronavirus pandemic, the authorities said. And I just quoted a little bit of that. In a music video for the song EDD that was posted to YouTube on September 11th, Mr. Baines and another rapper, Fat Wizza, boasted about getting rich off EDD, an apparent reference to the Employment Development Department. The rappers brag in the video about their swagger for EDD while holding stacks of EDD envelopes and about getting rich by going to the bank with a stack of these. A disclaimer below the video says that it was made with props for entertainment purposes. It's not clear when the disclaimer was added. So people do criminal things in plain view. It's sort of like the world has gone mad, I guess, in a world where people break 
shop windows with sledgehammers and go in and take anything they want uh, and uh, other things of that sort. Uh, people are just uh, going ahead and doing doing criminal things right in front of the cameras. What, what do they think? How do they think the world works? <sighs> anyway, on a lighter note, this kind of it makes me feel more up, uplifted. Today is the 50th anniversary of the release of the Bob Dylan album, New Morning. And that came out October 9th, 1970. That was the beginning of my freshman year. And I said, for me, I mean, not my freshman year, my sophomore year. And boy, did we play that album a lot. The, just to look at the cover brings back college for me in such a, such a vivid way. That album felt so good and just so exemplifies life. Life in the end of 1970, beginning of 1971. That was a, that was a quite. A, I was 19. Speaking of 19, yeah, I was 19. Yeah, the mystical, magical number. See, it came up. I didn't. I wasn't thinking about how that would come up. So now it's come up twice. If I were superstitious, that would be meaningful. I could go buy lottery tickets or something. Play the numbers. For me, New Morning is the soundtrack of my sophomore year in college. These songs are intimately interwoven with my memories of that time. Can't you hear that rooster crowing? And I said, and there was that time we listened to New Morning in 2011. And for that, I have an old post to go back to. Oh, I didn't do the link right, so I can't, can't immediately get back to that. There was something about New Morning I'll have to fix that link, and you'll have to go to the blog to see what it was, but something, it came up, it came up in my current life, it, to the extent that current is nine years ago, 2011. Uh, and to commemorate the album, I just quoted from Bob Dylan in his really cool book, Chronicles, Volume 1. This is what he said about New Morning. Some critics would find the album to be lackluster and sentimental, soft in the head. Oh, well, others would triumph as it fine. Uh, uh, others would triumph it as finally the old hymn is back. Triumph it. I don't think that's a right, a proper use of triumph, but, but um, he won the Nobel Prize, so maybe it is now. Maybe by just using a word, he can make that a proper use of the word. Other, oh, well. Others would triumph it as finally the old hymn is back. The old hymn is back. See, the whole thing is just a makeshift English in a, a Bob Dylan-ish way. He can do what he wants. Others would triumph it as a... <laughs> others would triumph it as finally the old hymn is back at last. That wasn't saying much either. I took it all as a good sign. <laughs> To be sure, the album itself had no specific resonance to the shackles and bolts that were strapping the country down, nothing to threaten the status quo. All this was in what the critics would later refer to as my middle period, and in many camps this record was referred to as a comeback album, and it was. It would be the first of many. And then let's see what we've got next. Oh, the next one. The next one is about blood. 
Now, the New York Times puts up these little dialogues between Gail Collins and Brett Stevens, who are both columnists at the New York Times. She's the liberal, and he's supposed to be the conservative. But they're both completely anti-Trump, so it's not really, they're not really on opposite sides. It's not really quite the point-counterpoint that one might, uh, that it might have been originally set up to be. So the title of this post is Bloodbath. I'm going to talk about the expression bloodbath, mostly. I'm reading, has Trump drawn the water for a Republican bloodbath? And if he has, what should Biden do with his first term? A conversation between Gail Collins and Brett Stevens, which ends, this is first, first is Brett and then is Gail, so Brett. Oh, and speaking of the Senate, did you hear Nebraska's Ben Sass tear into Trump? during that phone call with his constituents? Too little too late, in my view, though it's always nice to hear what Republicans really think of their favorite president. And Gail Collins says, yeah, thanks to Sass, we can point to a sitting senator from his own party who accused him of screwing up the corona crisis, cozying up to dictators and white supremacists, and drawing the water for a Republican bloodbath. Can't get much better than that. Catch you again next week, Brett. God knows what will have happened by then. And I said, I'm thinking, do you draw water for a bloodbath? Just taking the metaphor seriously, and I'll put to the side the violence of the imagery. Isn't the liquid for a bloodbath blood? A bloodbath is... In its oldest figurative meaning, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, a battle or fight at which much blood is spilt, a wholesale slaughter, a massacre. Figurative in the sense of bath, the blood is real blood, sort of half figurative, half literal. That goes back to 1843. The fully figurative meaning, a dramatic loss or heavy defeat, with both the bath and the blood as metaphor, is traced back only to 1967. Strangely enough, there's a non-metaphorical meaning that predates all that. A bath in warm blood taken as a tonic or form of medical treatment. The first quote is from 1834, London Medical Gazette. On blood baths, according to a dark tradition, the ancient kings of Egypt, used to bathe in human blood when they were seized with leprosy. And in 1895, you get this in the Cincinnati Medical Journal. Although French doctors do not often prescribe these forms of treatment, blood baths are not infrequently used. And I said, I would like you to speak to the medical doctors to see if there's any way you can take a blood bath to cure coronavirus, you know, if you could. And maybe you can, maybe you can't. Again, I say, maybe you can, maybe you can't. I'm not a doctor. Have you ever heard of that? And uh, uh, presumably you get my little joke there. That's a, that's a, a little bit of a rewrite of uh, what Trump said that time when he talked about using disinfectant or light to try to cure the coronavirus, a much, much mocked little... Um, blabber by Trump. What he actually met, uh, meant, I think uh, some people have tried to explain it as there really was a treatment using light, and that's all he was talking about. 
and certainly the only disinfectant was a germ-killing light. Uh, others think that he referred to disinfectant of the sort of a household cleaner disinfectant, like bleach, and uh, have had much uh, fun and horror uh, going on about that. Trump himself, I believe, has said uh, it was a joke. It was just joking. Um, but uh, that wasn't a good situation for joking, especially since we can see some people didn't take it seriously. It was such a bad situation for joking that I think most people probably think he was lying when he said it was a joke. I mean, you could just say anything at any time, and then when you're called on it or when it doesn't work out very well for you, you say, oh, it was a joke. What's the matter? Can't you take a joke? Well, why should anyone have to take a joke about coronavirus? That's uh, pretty absurd. Oh, speaking of Trump, I'm going to quote something he said in Carson City yesterday. And this post is just a fairly longish quote from Trump. And I didn't, I watched some of his rallies. I didn't watch the Carson City rally yesterday. But uh, I have the text from the transcript and I'm going to read it and I'm going to give it my inflection. I'm not going to do my Trump imitation. I can do a Trump imitation, but I'd rather read it showing just my own reaction to the words. That's the best I can do. If you want Trump saying it, you can look it up. You can find him saying it. He's talking about the women. The women come up to me. The women who they say don't like me, they actually do like me a lot. Suburban women, please vote for me. I'm saving your house. I'm saving your community. I'm keeping your crime way down. I keep hearing, you know, it's all fake stuff. Remember they said last time about women, women will never vote for him. Then the end of the evening, they're all crying. Oh my God, what happened? They want to destroy your suburbs. I say that to the women because I keep hearing they said the women from the suburbs. No, I think the women from the suburbs are looking for a couple things. One of them is safety. One of them is good, strong security. And one of them is they don't want to have low-income housing built next to their house. And you know who makes up 30% of your suburbs? Minorities, African-Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, minorities, okay? People think, is it racist? It's not racist, it's the opposite. I've had people come to me and say, thank you so much. But they keep talking about the women from the suburbs. I say, I think we're gonna have a big resounding, what the hell happened with the women in the suburbs? They really like Trump a lot. Only vote for me if you're a woman from the suburbs. But it's interesting because I really think that women from the suburbs are gonna like Trump because it is about safety, it's about safety. And when you see what's happening in our cities where they run and ransack, they're anarchists. And you know what? They actually say the suburbs are next. And just so you know, it's so important. These are Democrat-run states and cities. Biden supports cutting police funding, abolishing cash bail. You've got a murder. Oh, let's let them out. Oh, let's let them walk the street. You see what's happening in New York, what they're doing to New York. Our governor, what he's doing to New York is horrible. And then he called law, and he called law enforcement, Sleepy Joe called law enforcement recently, the enemy. No, no, law enforcement has done an incredible job. So that's, very, this is me again, I'm no longer quoting Trump, but you can see how that's pretty 
spontaneous and uh, staccato jumping around, but his basic message is he wants women to vote for him, and he's making a specific play for suburban women, and they want safety and security. And look at how the cities are. Look at how they're falling apart. And he denies that it's racist. He says, no, lots of uh, people of color live in the suburbs. 30% of the suburbs are minorities. So it's not racist to say, let's preserve the suburbs. Let's not have the low-income housing built right next to the suburban houses. Let's keep suburbia suburban. And uh, that's not keeping minorities out. That's just keeping low-income people out. But he talks about what percent of the suburbs are minorities. He doesn't talk about what percent of the low-income housing would be minorities or whether the people who who don't want low-income housing, why don't they want it? Is it because of race and ethnicity or is it just because it's low-income or because it's more dense housing and they want the suburban feel to their place? What's really going on there? Well, maybe you live in the suburbs. If you live in the suburbs, then you probably want the suburbs to look like the suburbs and not be made dense, but kept kind of sparse. (laughs) I actually live in an old-time suburb where the houses are pretty close together, so it's denser than the usual suburb. It's old. My house is about 100 years old, and... um, and actually, there's some apartment buildings a few blocks away, so lower-income housing is near here. And it's actually all pretty nice. It's actually quite lovely. And I like some of the density. I think it's more neighborly and more secure because there are more people around. But maybe you like it more spread out. People move to different kinds of places, and then they have a hope that it's going to stay the way it was. I mean... I moved into a neighborhood that had the level of density that it had when I moved in. So I guess I want it to stay approximately the same. You might think my neighborhood is too dense. But uh, people prefer what they prefer, and they tend to like things to stay the same. Certainly they don't want it to become more crime-infested, but density alone might not create more crime. And Trump is obviously trying to stimulate the fear of crime, the fear of insecurity, and just the fear of too many people. Now, maybe also in there is the fear of minorities. Maybe that that's part of it, but he denies that he means it in a racist way. But I'm sure there are many people who say, deny all you want. Uh, don't, why'd you have to deny it? You know, it's like protesting too much. You deny it because you know it's true. Okay, now the next post is about an article in the New York Times about um, dementia and voting. And the title of the article is, Having Dementia Doesn't Mean You Can't Vote. Yes, you can help a cognitively impaired person participate in the election. But heed these two guidelines in the New York Times. And the post heading I put on this is, If you knew you had dementia, would you refrain from voting? If you were caring for a person with dementia, would you refrain from helping them vote? And I said I would answer yes and yes, but that is not what the New York Times is saying. The New York Times is uh, encouraging people to help those with dementia to go ahead and vote, help them vote. And uh, there's a lot of these under, under, there's a lot of undervoting. There's a lot of people who have this condition 
and therefore might not vote. And uh, that's, that's this big group that could be mobilized to vote. From the article, the Census Bureau has reported that more than 23 million American adults, close to 10%, have conditions limiting mental functioning, including learning and intellectual disabilities and Alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia. Many will be effectively disenfranchised. Workers in nursing homes and assisted living facilities, as well as family members, may refuse to assist impaired voters because they believe that dementia disqualifies them. It doesn't. A diagnosis of cognitive impairment does not bar someone from voting. Voters need to pass, voters need pass no cognitive tests. They don't have to be able to name the candidates or explain the issues. And I said, not everything is controlled by law. You know, this says a a diagnosis of cognitive impairment does not bar someone from voting. In other words, there's no legal uh, forbidding of voting, even though you have cognitive impairment. Maybe you don't even understand anything, but you can still vote because there's no test. There's no test to see if you have the intellectual ability to vote. And I said, not everything is controlled by law. There's also a realm of ethics. Getting votes from people who don't understand what they are doing is rather obviously ethically wrong. The law is the way it is to keep the authorities from unfairly excluding people in a country where tests were once used in order to exclude black people. But there are many people who don't know what they're doing and they shouldn't be urged to vote. It's ethically correct for them to take themselves out of a choice-making activity that they don't understand. And it is ethically wrong to use an older person to collect a vote for the candidate that you want to win. And the article ends with the conclusion of one personal story, quote, on October 8th, after considerable discussion, Judith Kozlowski helped her father make his selections. He allowed her to disclose that after a lifetime of voting for Republican, this time he voted for Joseph R. Biden Jr. So here's a person who's, I don't know how, um, how much loss this person has. Uh, but the this is a, reminds me a little bit of the rapper who rapped about the crime he committed or the woman in the car um, going on about how she was boxed in and shouldn't have been laughed at when she tried to go around the traffic that was boxing her in. Here's someone, I mean, I don't know at what point this is an actual violation of law, uh, but I think the ethical issue, the ethical issue isn't, I don't think it's even discussed at all in the New York Times. There's just a reference to how it's not illegal. Well, it's not illegal because years ago, there were efforts to keep black people from voting by making them take a literacy test. And it was actually hard. It was just designed to be a stumbling block. And people whose grandfathers had voted were grandfathered in and didn't need to take it. And so black people had to take it because their grandfathers didn't vote. Um, and then they would, uh, they would lose. It was an effort, an active effort to disenfranchise people, especially people who were less well-educated or, or simply because they were black, because of the way grandfather clauses worked. Um, these tests were designed to make it hard for black people to vote.
So that's why we don't test people's cognitive ability. I mean, I wonder if we did, if there was any kind of test whether you should be voting. Um, would, would 23 million American, uh, would 10% of, of uh, American adults, 23 million Americans, be excluded from voting if they tried? Uh, or would it be a lot more? Well, it depends on how hard the test is. But who are these people? There's no limit to somebody who's registered to vote, who's voted in the past. You can get a mail-in vote for them, and you can help them fill it out, even though you're helping them with every, many basic, ordinary things that they can't handle anymore. These are not people who should be voting. It's really anyone who's helping that person is kind of taking two votes for themselves. Really, uh, really surprises me. Well, maybe nothing should surprise me, but I think it's awful that the New York Times is not discussing the ethics of using people this way, of getting extra votes for yourself by guiding another person, a disabled person, through checking some boxes. And to say, well, it's not illegal. So everything that's not illegal, just go ahead and do it. Uh, is that what we've come to? Uh, either it's a crime, either it's illegal, or go right ahead. The truth, uh, you know, th there's your judicial activism for you. That's why people who say things like that don't understand judicial restraint. There's a lot of areas of human endeavor that are not covered by legal requirements. And there really shouldn't be uh, excessive requirements. There shouldn't be too many rules. But if people feel like everything that's not forbidden is permitted, everything that's not specifically forbidden, go right ahead and do. Uh, where's your morality? Where are your ethics? That's not in the New York Times anymore? I mean, I don't understand all this opposition to Trump going alongside of this forgetting that ethics and morality are anything at all. It's Trump's fault. We don't do it. We don't believe in ethics anymore because Trump is so bad. Is that how we think? one reason I personally am abstaining. I'm pretty sure I'm not suffering from mental impairment because you can read my blog every day and see if it's gone downhill, see if it's the same. You can judge me. So, and I also mentioned in the comments that I do the New York Times crossword every day, and it the crossword follows a pattern of Monday being the easiest and working up to the hardest one on Saturday. And so if you do the puzzle every day, and, and you can see in the app how much time it takes you to do. You can see whether, you're, even if you're, if you're declining just a little, you would start to have times that went over your average or were getting harder, or maybe you couldn't finish this Saturday. But uh, it's kind of a way to check yourself. I do that. So anyway, I, I don't think I'm mentally impaired at all, but um, I'm so disgusted with this election. I feel so distanced from these people. What a horrible choice. What a nightmare. I don't want either of them. I don't like either of them. And I understand the idea of voting for the lesser of two evils. But sometimes even that doesn't. In this case, for me, even that doesn't make sense. There's so much urging of people to vote. But there's not enough discussion of the right not to vote. You do not have to vote. You can have high upstanding reasons for standing back and saying, I'm not doing it. I'm not participating. And certainly, if you don't understand what the election is, you 
you know, hopefully you still have an understanding of what's right or wrong, what you should be doing or not. It's like, you know, but maybe you're, if you're at a certain point, you don't even have good judgment about that. It might be seen as analogous to um, driving while drunk. So you shouldn't drive while drunk. But if you're really drunk, you might get in and drive because you just have, don't even have judgment about whether you're drunk. You're just so far gone. You're really drunk. So you just get in and drive. So driving drunk is something that drunk people make a call about, but they're drunk. They don't have good judgment. Hopefully someone else is around to tell them not to drive. Well, if you don't understand what the election is, you shouldn't vote just because, and if anything, you should at least vote consistently with how you voted in the past. You have someone who's always voted Republican, and now he's going to vote Democrat for the first time? Well, I sort of understand it. It is a very odd election, and a lot of Republicans are resisting Trump. <sighs> anyway, there's one more post, and this is about an article in The Atlantic by Sarah Longwell called Why People Who Hate Trump Stick With Him. Since 2018, I've conducted roughly 50 focus groups with Trump voters to understand the shifting dynamics within the Republican Party. And I, I quote just a little part of it. Here's the quote. Some meaningful number of voters who are clear-eyed about Trump and his manifest failures, even those who think he is plainly doing a bad job, will stick with the president because they believe Democrats are worse and the media aren't to be trusted. And these aren't voters who are glued to Fox News and reading Breitbart News. Often they don't think about politics at all. And they certainly don't follow the daily machinations of Washington. They're typically not on Twitter. Instead, they swim in a cultural soup of Trumpism surrounded by friends, family, and social media acquaintances who do live more exclusively in a right-wing media ecosystem. Even if Biden pulls off a landslide victory, that ecosystem will remain. And so will the dislike of Democrats and distrust of the mainstream media. Getting rid of tr Trump won't end the opposition's problems. And I said, yes, it will be interesting to see what these people do if Trump is cut off after one term. I'm thinking something like the Tea Party will reconfigure itself, but also that much less polite people, having seen how aggressively Trump was torn apart every day of his entire term, will treat Biden just as harshly. I mean, uh, and this isn't on the post. This is just me expanding on that a little. Some people think uh, Biden is very mild-mannered and uh, calming, um, but that's just in the run-up to the election where he's been kind of hiding from view and minimizing himself so that people will focus on Trump and how they don't like Trump. But once Trump is out of the way, assuming Biden wins, the focus will turn to Biden. Did anybody like Biden? And the people who lost their guy, the Trumpsters, will look at Biden and uh, remember how badly Trump was treated for years, what obstacles were put in his path at every point, how harshly he was treated, and uh, they may want their, now it's their turn to trash the president. Oh, we should support the president. That's generally been my orientation over the years, that once a person is elected president, let's hope he does well. Let's support him. Uh, let's be good, unless something terrible happens. But the new way to treat a president 
since Trump got in is apparently to treat him as if he didn't even really win and tear him down at every point. Try to impeach him. Try to try to even accuse him of a crime. Hope he he belongs in prison. All the worst is wanted, and and make the make the period as uh, bad and painful as possible for all of us. Why why won't that happen with Biden too? I mean, I'm sure if Trump somehow pulls it out and gets reelected, that uh, that that will go very badly for the next four years although no one will be fighting for it, the outcome in an election at that point. They'll just be waiting for him to be done in four years or perhaps hoping to impeach him again. Um, but uh, it's going to be ugly whoever wins. I think uh, we've trained ourselves. We've shown ugliness. And how could we ever go back? Oh, because we all want to be calm. We, we just want peace again. But is Biden capable of be- bringing that peace? Is Biden going to step aside? Uh, pretty soon? And is Kamala Harris going to be the president? I think that will be, uh, I don't see that going so smoothly. And I don't think the unsmoothness of that prospect is really being looked at now, because Trump attracts attention to himself and wants to be the focus of attention. And the Democrats have wanted that too. So it's been all about Trump. But the day after election day, we'll wake up We'll see that Biden was elected, unless something weird happens, and, uh, and we'll take it from there.